Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Catherine May author of Wintering and the forthcoming Enchantment. And this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question. And this time around, we're asking, how can we come back together again? Hi, I'm Catherine May. Welcome to How We Live Now, the podcast that explores the post-everything world. It's a sunny day. I always feel like I'm drinking in the last dregs of the vitamin D at this time of year before sunlight becomes in short supply. I'm loving the sound of crunchy leaves underfoot though. It's the best, isn't it? There's no better sound. I thought I'd just share that with you for a while. So, I'm excited today to share a conversation with you. With Edje Tewakuram who said she'd be sympathetic if I couldn't pronounce her name properly because British people can't make the right mouth shape. I'm going to take that with the kindness it's intended. (laughs) Ajay is so well known in her native Turkey where she gained a dangerous reputation for challenging the government. 
tripped over, not for the first time. And now, because of the risk that would mean for her personal security, the risk of imprisonment, the risk of personal persecution, she lives away from her family, currently in Germany, but previously in Croatia. But whenever I speak to her, she's always somewhere in the world. She's a true global citizen. I don't know how she gets the energy, but there's some fire there. And I thought she would be an incredible early guest for how we live now. But also for this question of how we can come back together. Because her latest book is called Together. And it's a true entreaty for us to abandon some of the hardening that we've undertaken as a collective consciousness, if you like, and to soften into a world in which we can expect to have enough rather than too much, in which we can listen and observe rather than shout back, in which we can make lasting friendships that nurture us rather than enmities, and in which we can have something greater than hope, something more solid, which is faith. I think she's an extraordinary writer, but she's also a courageous speaker, and she's funny and earthy and curious and all kinds of wonderful. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I'll be back later to tell you how you can take part in it. Well, I am really excited to be back for a new season uh, with a new name. So we are now How We Live Now, which is allowing me to answer some bigger questions or at least to ask them. I'm not sure if we'll come to answer them fully, but we'll give it a go. And I'm here today with my very first guest, Ejay Temelkuren, who is a Turkish journalist and author, um, most recently known for her book, How to Lose a Country, and Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now. Her work centres on a concern about the rise of right-wing populism and also the looming threat of dictatorship that comes from that. But I think most of all her work turns to asking how we can fight this encroachment. And I'm thrilled to talk to you today. Welcome. Welcome to the first episode. I'm really nervous. Is that ridiculous to be nervous on my own podcast? It's so strange. First of all, thank thank you for inviting me. And I am also thrilled. So don't worry about being thrilled. And uh, yeah, it's so nice to be on this program. And it's nice, very nice to speak to you actually about these massive Mm. questions. I just feel like those huge questions are the ones that I'm desperate to ask now. Like I can't, I can't think of anything else. We're in this period of such immense change and I feel a little lost, I guess. 
And I want to talk to people that feel less lost than I do. Well, good luck to you about that. <laughs> well, um, you know, um, you know, I think on on several levels, many people feel the same thing. Uh, I was in Barcelona a few days ago for Atlas Future Festival, and the theme of the festival was fixing the future. And mm. I met these incredible people doing incredible work, very hard work. They are trying to reinvent the future, so to speak, uh, in wow. these end times, in these apocalyptic times. Mm. And I thought, wow. First of all, I, I was truly impressed and thrilled. Uh, but secondly, I saw how everyone is exhausted in, yeah. a, in a deeper level. And also how everybody is incredibly concerned about what mm. is to come, especially for this winter. So we are not alone, at least no, in being no. concerned part. It's maybe something that unites us, in fact, that sense of, yeah, exhaustion, jadedness, like ongoing frustration and anime with how the world seems to be turning and how we can't seem to to pull it back together again. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, when I was writing together, I thought this book is too early for Western audiences. Uh, it okay. was, I thought it was early. Uh, it was during the pandemic I wrote that book. Because, you know, I, I, I wrote together for those people who feel like we lost everything. Uh, mm. Like, you know, there are no more triangulation points. Uh, we have no more bearings, n neither yeah. on moral, philosophical, nor political level. But then now I'm seeing that people are coming to that state of mind, so to speak. Mm. You know, where do we go from here, kind of? Yeah. Or do we at all go from here anywhere? That is the general sense, I think. I think we're definitely there. And actually, let's begin with telling your story a little bit, because I think that puts a load of this into context, really. And, you know, the, the sense that I, I always get the sense with you that you're a true global citizen, but that's for some very dark reasons, actually. So <laughs> let, <laughs> you began as a journalist in your native Turkey. Tell us what happened from there. Well, I mean, like, that is like literally last century. Um, <laughs> this, uh, that is 1993. I was 20 years old, I, I, or 19 even. Mm. I started journalism and I, I was mostly concerned about those bloody issues, such as, you know, Armenian, uh, Kurdish issue, uh, women's mm. rights. You know, I did a lot of political journalism. And then when I was 27, I was already a political columnist. Everybody thought that I was using my picture from years ago, although that was me, I was almost a child when I I was a prominent you know, columnist <laughs> in a prominent newspaper. And then, <clears throat> meanwhile, I published books um, on in different genres, uh, from poetry to political documentary, journalism books, novels, and so on. After AKP came to power, uh, after Mr. Erdogan came to power, things got really problematic. And it was 2016 when the military coup attempt happened in Turkey. It became almost unlivable. The mm -hmm. country became quite unbearable for me on yeah. several levels. It wasn't only the fear, but also being controversial, being in the opposition became not only fearful, but it became primitive as well, because somehow right. the level of oppression determines the level 
intellectual level of uh, opposition as well. Right. So anyway, um, I found myself not only terrified, but also intellectual, but also intellectually paralyzed. So I decided to move to Zagreb. I had an apartment there, a studio apartment. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a you know premeditated uh, decision. I went there right. for a weekend uh, with two t-shirts and one pair of pants, and then I decided to stay. Um, wow, that's yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I was I, I've always been on the road, but that was of course different, and mm. then. In two, starting from 2016, I started writing, I began writing in English, mm. How to Lose a Country and Together were written in English. Uh, so I had the torture of uh, yes. translating them to my own language, not them, only together actually, to my own language, which was, oh God. <laughs> I am... Yeah, full of admiration for you that well, you do that. At all. Yeah, there was a translator, of course. I shan't take shan, but um, I had to go through it, and it's so weird to see your words in your own language, but not <laughs> your tone. And so, anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, since 2016, my main job has become talking about authoritarianism, fascism, right-wing populism to, especially to the Western audiences. Right. Uh, because when I came to Zagreb, I realized that they have no idea what is to come. They, you know, they never thought that Boris Johnson would be a prime minister. They never thought that Trump would last more than a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, all these things were supposed to disappear suddenly mm -hmm. in their point of view. And they were, you know, the Western audiences were absolutely angry when I, when I was telling them that, you know, what, what we live through in Turkey is coming towards you and you're going to practice like experience exactly the same things yeah so yeah a, a, a woman with curly hair coming from turkey uh, telling the <laughs> brits that you are no better than turks is is something <laughs> that is we, a challenge yeah, we, we don't believe it can happen to us i think you're exactly right and yeah. and it, actually because we are so naive about this stuff tell us like spell it out to us what it means to be politically active in Turkey today. What would the risks be for you if you were still there? What is happening? Uh, first, this uh, the word about naivete. I don't think it's being naive. It is more like, I wouldn't even say exceptionalism, but I think it is more like one cannot easily digest the fact that this madness is happening in mm. in one's country. Uh, when it was happening in Turkey, when it started happening in Turkey 20 years ago, we didn't want to acknowledge it. We didn't want to admit and accept the fact. And that's why maybe yeah. Turkey is in this situation, in this mess at the moment. Turkey now is a place where all the political bearings are too fragile to hold on to. Mm -hmm. So there is a one-man rule, uh, Mr. Erdogan single-handedly ruling the entire system, economic, you know, judiciary, yeah. political yeah. system. And, you know, the rest of the people are, you know, classified into two first-class citizens who are either members of the party or sympathizers of the party, or they mm. just, you know, are obedient 
to right. the system, to the regime. And the others who are mostly fearing for their lives, many of them had to leave Turkey already, especially academics and well-educated people. Mm -hmm. uh, the big capital in Turkey pretty much... Uh, you know, moved their quarters to either London, New York, or several other right. places in Europe. So the country is drying up on so many levels. But most importantly, I'm never sure how to say this, but the joy of life is not there anymore. Turkey mm. has always been a crazy country, more or less. <laughs> but we had this joy of life. Right. It's not there anymore. The depressed uh, mood in Turkey is so solid, you can touch it. Wow. Uh, and I would call it the grand retreat, the grand regression, um, because nobody wants to take the chances and risk their lives to say anything. So there is this mm -hmm. um, deep and widespread silence in the country. Wow. Uh, and they're all waiting for the elections to come, which which is supposed to happen in June 2023. And until then, everybody's literally holding their breath. And on top mm. of all this oppression and suppression, there is a dire economic crisis. Inflation rate is over the roof and it's, it's record uh, numbers. And the cost of living is unbearable even for... Uh, upper middle class. Um, so yeah, yeah, this is it. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you said that, you know, you're ahead of us on that. And I and I think, again, like that is the kind of thing that we Brits find it quite hard to believe that other people are ahead of us rather than behind us, <laughs> you know, and that that's the problem. You feel very strongly that we've got this coming, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Ooh, I was <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah well I was I was uh, almost beginning to write how to lose a country in 2017 mm -hmm. no 16 Brexit was happening and it was the shock of Brexit in London uh, people were barely understanding that this is serious it is happening it's not a joke yeah. um, and then Boris Johnson was not prime minister yet and I was telling the audiences that you're going to have Boris Johnson and he will drive you mad not because <laughs> he's going to be an oppressive leader uh, overnight but because he's going to do so many interesting th and strange things that you won't know how to respond to them and what to do about them. But then, of course, uh, British democracy is one of the most mature democracies and somehow the establishment uh, managed to sack yes. him so sack him from his job. Which, But then, you know, I, I told this with Trump as well. Uh, when, they, when Americans got rid of Trump, they were so happy. But then I, I always want to remind them that you know, the entire establishment had to come together to do that, to get yeah. rid of a clown. So it is not much different for Boris Johnson and he's, he didn't disappear. I think he's, he's, uh, he's no, he he's, doesn't feel truly gone. I'd have to say. <laughs> I know, sure. I know. I, w I was in London and his ghost was haunting mm -hmm. everyone still. And one more observation, and this happened in Turkey as well, when, the uh, domestic political situation is so becomes so maddening and so you know it, everybody's occupied with this domestic conundrum uh, that they you know they don't really know what's going on in the rest of the world and turkey yeah. closed in on 
herself, just like this after Erdogan came to power. And I saw the same thing happening in London, which was interesting to me, because even the progressive circles, we're not talking about Chile, where exciting things are happening, or we're not talking, they were not talking about European Union and this and that, but they were talking about still Boris Johnson and cost of living and, you know, how are we going yeah. to get over this winter? It's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So this is another symptom. It's another symptom, I think. Well, it kind of obsesses us with ourselves. And I, and I, I mean, Absolutely. here is the first kind of division that we can identify, because actually, even though to you and I, it seems self-evident that it's a good thing that Boris has gone, you mm. know, 50% of Conservative Party members still think he should be there. And, and that's, therein lies the problem, doesn't it? That that I cannot even think my way into the mindset that would believe that he could be a good thing for the country. And it, it's this sense, it's that sense of like that fundamental separation of, of views there that I think is the thing that we're grappling with. Yeah, um, this is the thing. I mean, like you can get rid of these guys, but then millions of minions are there. Mm. So... Um, well, I don't want to be condescending, but obviously, <laughs> well, well I, I just did, I think. But anyway, um, uh, the thing is, you know, how do we survive in such a polarized environment? Because it, it, it is not only supporting a party, it is, it's a deeper division, like on, on a moral level, on a philosophical level, on the yeah. perception of the truth level. So mm. neither Western world nor the entire globe has witnessed such a, a division before. We could have different political views. We could have fought each other over those views, but then we never had different grounds to exist. Now it's as if we are, you know, living on different grounds. So we are not even in the same ground to discuss or fight or whatever. We just yeah. exist separately. So that is simply why I actually wrote together because we need to go back to the basics, so to speak, basics mm -hmm. of philosophy, basics of politics, basics of our understanding of life, to find a way to cohabit in these countries and in, in the world together. Mm. And what I think came across really strongly for me from Together was the idea that to do that, we need to find something joyful and, and kind of pleasurable and like, you know, to use a really weak word, happy, mm -hmm. rather than, I don't know, the kind of sour kind of anger that we've got used to living with. And I, like, for me, I think that's that's part of the compelling nature of people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump is that they make it look fun. And maybe we on the left of the spectrum don't manage to make our vision of the world look quite so jolly like they <laughs> they look like it's a laugh don't they <laughs> <laughs> um well that's the other reason i wrote together because right-wing populism all these leaders with fascist inclinations they are masters when it comes to managing politics of emotions mm. and in hindsight, it might be more clear for people uh, to notice that uh, both Trump, Boris Johnson, Orban, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, all these leaders have come to power through their mastery in politics of emotions. 
Right. They didn't really promise anything. They didn't come up with a program, political program or anything. They just managed politics of emotions. They played with the emotions of the masses. And mm. first and foremost, it was fear and anger that they yeah. played played with. So when it comes to emotions, and I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, we progressives, we people who are pro-democracy, we kind of look down upon the word emotion and how mm. emotions of the masses are shaped. We yeah. don't want to say anything about that almost. Mm. But this is life. This is reality. This is how politics on a global level is shaped at the moment. Yeah. Yes, we have to uh, have something to say about politics, politics of emotions. Yes, we have to say something about anger, fear, mm. What else? Like, you know, lack of attention, the sense of broken dignity, and so on and so forth. All these emotions are going to be shaping our politics in the coming decades. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah we can complain and whine about the fact that rationale is not there, that, <laughs> you know, people yeah. are not, do not care about facts, and so on and so forth. But this is the reality and politics, you know, resides in reality. It doesn't reside in some imaginary rainbow land, whatever. So <laughs> we, have yeah. to, we have to deal with this. And progressives have to have a consensus about these pol this politics, their politics of emotions. How are we going mm. to, how they are going to deal with these um, massive current and very determining uh, emotions? That's such an interesting way to see the divide, isn't it? Because the frustration, I think, that comes from both sides is this, is this almost complete inability to communicate with each other, this, this total different language of what it is to be a political human being and, and how we might envision society. And I, yeah, I, I don't know if, if the progressive side is bringing the vision enough. You know, like it, it's almost, we've got to return to the idea of something being stirring. And the, the kind of right-wing populists have got these really big concepts like nation and, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and whereas we're uncomfortable often with those concepts and we're uncomfortable even with talking about morality when at the same time we're deeply morally offended by what's going on. And, and it's, a, it's such a, a gulf that we've got to bridge. Yes, exactly. And yes, I know these words are, absolutely dangerous, like morality, emotions, mm. and my favorite word, faith, faith in humankind and so on. Right, yeah. But then we have to take these words back from the realm of religion, back uh, from the realm of, uh, you know, social madness, whatever. And we mm. have to politicize them in a different way now, because yeah. these words actually belong to politics, if you ask me. This is one yeah. thing. And the, the second thing is, if we can go back to basics, like if we are brave enough to talk about fear, for instance, mm. then we can 
even convince those people that have been supporting right-wing populism that they do not have to act on their fear in such a way that we can actually share that fear and we can steer the wrong political choices, and I say it very confidently, wrong political choices, towards something more constructive and more, I don't know, sane, <laughs> to say yeah. it simply. So, yeah. yeah, that is why politics of emotions is important, because it somehow is the way to connect us to those people whom we think unrecognizable or like, you know, mm. impossible to live with. Yeah, it's we've got to bring the emotion back. So mm. my question for this mini series of the podcast that I'm making is how do we come back together again? Mm -hmm. um, and what I observe from your work, and, and please correct me if this is wrong, but you're focusing on the kind of softer approaches to this you know you you say that like let's not get tempted by revolution because that brings chaos and it's it's destructive and it kind of it throws along a load of young people on the fire essentially so you're thinking about these very constructive sort of soft skill ways that we can come back together again can you talk me around that the way that you thought about those those 10 methods if you like mm -hmm. um when you were coming up with them oh well Catherine, personally, I love the word revolution. Uh, I mean, like, it stirs me up, obviously. I'm like, it's the most it's sexy stirring. word. Yeah, yeah. It, it's <laughs> the sexiest word ever. But, you know, I've been doing journalism since I was 19, and I have been, you know, the most hellish places on earth, uh, like wars, war zones, the poorest countries, and so on. And I saw many people talking about revolution, and I saw many people sacrificing themselves for right. their own revolution, you know, because that word is used by so many different mm. yeah, people in, different ways, in, a, yeah. in, in a very contradicting way, in very contradicting mm. ways even. So, you know, although I love the word, although I would love a revolution, I also know that it, it, it includes blood, yeah. period. That is it. That is reality. It doesn't happen just, you know, when, while we are chanting, we shall overcome. Yeah. Um, it is it is blood and it's lives and mostly young lives. Mm -hmm. um, I think at this point of human history, we can be a little bit more smarter <laughs> than the late, yeah. you know, previous generations. And we can maybe convince people that this system, this neoliberal system is not good for any of us, one, even for the, you know, the, the wealthiest, it's not even good for mm. them. They're not even happy. And that we can actually transform it because there is enough, there are enough ideas to transform this system. What yeah. we lack is the political will of people and political imagination of the people. Mm. So my problem in life in general is how we create that political will for a peaceful and, as you said, constructive transformation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm getting old as well because I feel for these young people who would sacrifice their lives for such a word and then be completely disappointed when the new uh, status quo is built as they see, yeah. as they will see that it, nothing really changes when the way you change the system is the same. I mean, maybe I'm naive to kind of want this all to happen without bloodshed, but I just, I can't get behind, as you say, this kind of, this vision, this glorious 
like macho vision of how we might overcome because actually that's it's not consensual either and it would just lead to more violence more conflict it just doesn't seem to be the way and i i think the alternative is much harder and much less decisive and it involves us all digging much deeper and like having to keep going back to these horrible debates that we hate having and this horrible sense of conflict and uncertainty but it seems to me that that's the right way to do it well i mean while we are talking right now uh when we are recording this it's iranian women are dancing on streets without yes. their headscarves yeah so how did this happen uh we never know i mean of course there was a young girl 22 year old girl who was who who was killed by police violence because her hijab was not correct whatever mm. and there have been many women since 1979 who lost their lives to this cause uh, for their freedom to well yeah. trying to get their freedom uh, and many had to leave their country so there is it's not like you know suddenly one night everybody decided mm. to rebel but still i see you know i was uh, watching the footage uh, from iran and i saw the police retreating when women were together Uh, and yeah. they weren't wearing hijab and, and it was so like incredibly touching and invigorating to to see that so uh, we need to have a majority how how do we build that majority to mm. to transform a system is a technical and tactical question we can deal with it, that later but i think civil disobedience will be the answer in coming years because my observation especially in the western countries in the united states as well is that young generation is removing their consent from the system they do not want right. to work they do not want to have a home or they do not have the hope of having a home of their own they do not want to live the happy life of the capitalist system and they mm. do not believe in this theatrics of democracy anymore this representative democracy and its crumbling mechanism so they are removing their consent and there are millions of people like this i think one of the most important problems in coming years or in this coming year will be to connect these people and articulate their demands because they're not talking at all not as much as they want to or not as much as they mm -hmm. think but this removal of consent on a massive on and mass uh, will be a political reality that we will have to deal with and how do we make that mass of people how do we steer that mass of people into a civil disobedience movement i think this would be one of the interesting questions of current politics especially this winter mm. we'll be back to the conversation in just a moment but first of all we know how hard it is to find new podcasts and we thought you might love this one hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, we're the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we became friends through our mutual love of reading. And soon after launched a podcast that's now entering its seventh year. We talk about the books we're reading, have read, and hope to read. And share biblio adventures of our literary explorations throughout New England, here in the United States, or wherever our travels take us. We regularly interview authors and others in the world of books and host quarterly read-alongs with our listeners. A new episode drops every other Tuesday. After six years, there's a big backlist you can dip into or jump right in with our most current episode. Find us on your favorite podcast app or stream directly from our website, bookcougars.com. That's B-O-O-K-C-O-U-G-A-R-S.com. Happy listening and reading. One of the questions that I keep asking myself, I suppose, not that I have the answer, but is is why haven't we seen rioting yet? And I think there's some some really interesting reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them being that the kind of bloodshed that's happening in our social media discourse feels to me like it's actually doing more work than we believe it's doing. Like it feels, we, we you know, we talk about it as so pointless and so indulgent, but I begin to wonder if that isn't actually patronising to to think that. And to, and I, I wonder if it isn't doing much more work than we think it's doing. It is too early for us to know this uh, because mm. like how many years has it been Twitter or uh, Facebook, you know, especially yeah, like they're 15 maybe. Yeah. yeah. But they're, you know, political, uh, these, you know, tools being put into political use is since from Tahrir, I would say, or mm. Greece mm, mostly, but mostly, you know, Tahrir was the milestone. And then we started using Twitter and Facebook like more actively, uh, in, in terms of politics. What we know from history is that whenever there is a new communication medium, politics is transformed. We are going through that change now. And maybe you're right. Maybe we are underestimating it. Maybe it is doing something. But then we cannot know it because there is an incompatibility between our democratic mechanisms and the social media. We can, you right. know, we can talk through social media, but uh, we can represent ourselves on social media, but we cannot, we, we are still bound with the representative democracy in democratic, in the conventional democratic mechanism. So our communication tools is not in accordance 
with mm, it's the, not matched up to the, yeah, to the actual it, mechanisms of change exactly exactly so in many ways we can be fooling ourselves that we are having an effect when actually we're just being occupied in that space while other people go out and vote <laughs> well that is true on one level but then we are creating an atmosphere there like in a political atmosphere and mm. you know yes tahir is thanks to Twitter, actually. Not all of it, but a big part of it was thanks to Twitter and Gezi as well uh, in Turkey. And today, you know, many ideas are developed in that sphere and people connect to each other. I personally connect to many people on Twitter and, you know, I found my even, you know, literary agent on Twitter at some point <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I'm like on Instagram as well. So, yes, people do connect to each other. But what will become of all these all this web of co uh, connections is mm. still not clear. But then lately, especially in the last few years after the, during the pandemic and after the pandemic, I see many small initiatives all around the world trying to reinvent every big concept like economy, politics, and so on. And all these people naturally connect to each other through social media. Right. And in that sense, I think new politics is determined by social media. Uh, mm. It actually, you know, takes its human resources from social media. And it will keep on being like this. And we're going to see something, things, you know, beautiful new things coming out yeah. of uh, these connections. And we will have to get back and thank to Jack uh, on Twitter <laughs> for doing this. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to show him some gratitude eventually. Damn it. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I, I feel like, I, I feel like we're learning so much about each other. And I think it's really the first opportunity we've ever had to know each other on this global scale. And that is as hard and as maddening and as complex and confusing as as you might expect it to be like we've we've never processed information on this scale before and our sense of justice is being expanded in a way that we haven't got a structure for coping with yet i think it we're, we're in the middle of this big bang oh catherine i'm like this is my personal problem as well because i, <laughs> I i'm not a very social person although i look like an extrovert i am at heart, a you know, very, <laughs> very, very <laughs> introvert person. Uh, so I cannot connect to too many people, although my life is full of people. Mm -hmm. And I cannot process all these things, all the all this input coming yeah. from people. Yeah. Yes, that is a problem. And I see it happening in younger generation as well, because mm. they know so many people, they have so many connections, they are overwhelmed. And I, for the first time, I think I understand why they feel so tired, not tired, exhausted, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, because they are processing far more than we did in their age. Yeah, um, it's huge. It is, and it, and it's, it is massive. It comes with such a sense of responsibility, actually, exactly. which is correct. Like we should feel that sense of responsibility when we see injustice happening but that doesn't mean to say that we can do anything about it like th those two things don't match that massive sense of injustice and our complete helplessness are 
so painful for us to live with right now. Yeah, that is why I think I think there are two contradicting or maybe completing trends at the moment. Mm. One is connecting more to more and more people, but also at the same time building smaller communities. Yeah. Um and I yeah. keep hearing this word a lot lately community community and with uh, with the pandemic it became more you know visible and significant people are tending towards small communities be it a knitting club or a political party but although they are connected to the rest of the world they want to live in their own reality which is actually healthy because there's only so many people we can connect or we can have we can socialize with mm. um, and this as you said this is the first time in human history we are yeah. trying to yeah. do you know trying something beyond our limits yeah in a way in terms of uh, capacity uh, socialization capacity mm. i think the thing with living through a revolutionary time rather than a revolution is that it's not clear that we're in it. I think we'll look back on this and realize the constant change that we were enduring and like maybe forgive ourselves a bit for not being able to change the world all in one go. Um <laughs> but <laughs> but while we're here there's a kind of horror to it, you know. There's a kind of sense of seeing everything all at once and feeling so abjectly helpless in the face of that. And we We haven't got an answer for that yet. And in lots of ways, I feel like the progressives are trying to answer that for all the world at once. Whereas the kind of populist right is much more comfortable with saying, no, 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 let's focus on our country and our, you know, and then and then you get those really sort of quite horrifying definitions of of sort of ethnic groups coming in that you know, that kind of closes down towards you know a very narrow definition of whiteness or of nationality yeah their job is easy because yeah, and, you it's know, really simple yeah. there's on, there's only one paragraph they have to memorize and re keep on repeating um mm. but whereas we are you know truly concerned about the situation and we're we're thinking about it genuinely thinking about it but then you are right this is a terrifying time because it's a revolutionary time and revolutions do not happen over night uh, and mm. it, it became a different kind of revolution um i'm remembering tahrir and i'm remembering now black lives matter or me too you know they didn't maybe change something in particular but they changed the fabric of who we are and fabric of our relation to each mm. other and to the world yeah. so it was a revolutionizing thing it was a revolution in a way and i think many revolutions uh, in the coming age decades will happen like this maybe it will just become embarrassing to be fascist it will just become embarrassing <laughs> to be wealthy just like you know you cannot harass women anymore because you're embarrassed because you're terrified mm. it will become embarrassing to be to be xenophobic Yeah. Uh, maybe it yeah. will it will happen on this moral level in a way mm -hmm. all this revolutionary thing but then these contradicting trends or inclinations yeah. are pulling us apart i have a friend <laughs> mm -hmm. he's a prepper he's a secret prepper oh wow okay. exactly but then he's working on the future of democracy 
as an academic. <laughs> maybe maybe explain what a prepper is in this context. Because oh, maybe yeah. not everyone's it, come across the term. Yeah, I'm like he's preparing for apocalypse and the end times and so wow. on. So, but he's also uh, genuinely working, doing some amazing work on future of democracy. So. Right. Uh, yeah. Who is he now? Is he a person who gave up or is he a person who believes in the future? I think it is both and it's mm. both for both of, uh, for every one of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and these are the, I, th- I just think the dividing lines between what once would have been like very defined political views have moved, you know, and so you can now be a prepper and also someone who is, you know, deeply invested in improving society. Like it's not necessarily contradictory, but I, but those, those shifts are very hard for us to process in, in short bouts of time. Yeah. Yeah. But then, um, that's why I propose the concept of faith against hope yes. in together. I want, I want you to talk about this. Um, well, hope is a very fragile word for these times and it's inconsequential because it doesn't matter if you're hopeless or hopeful, it doesn't change your political actions on daily basis. Mm. And also hope has become a commodity for the system to sustain itself, I think, because whenever you go on a commercial street in Europe, any street in Europe, um, you see all these advertisements, hopeful advertisements, buy a t-shirt, be the hope, buy more paperbacks, be the change and so on. So. There is, you know, several things wrong with hope, I guess, the mm-hmm. concept of hope. That's why we have to make a deliberate moral and political choice of believing in ourselves and in other people, because faith is irrefutable. And faith does not care about hope if it's a hopeful situation or hopeless one. It just does what it does. And I think as a human skill, faith should be taken seriously by politics. Although I am aware that it's a dangerous word, Mm. I think we shouldn't underestimate people's capacity to believe in something and their limitlessness when they believe in something. And this is a time we have to believe in a future. Like, you know, because it is not actually there maybe, but if we believe, we can make it happen. Mm. And it's almost like hope is too fragile to hold that. We lose hope all the time. Yeah. I mean, like faith is more stable. Yeah. It would take me five minutes to kill all your hopes and the audience's hopes about future. But then Mm. if you have faith, you're unbeatable. (laughs) (laughs) I, I would like to think so. And also I would love to ask you about the thing that you say about befriending fear, it's quite hard to say that, the idea that we can befriend our fear, that seems to me to be a much more dangerous concept in your former national society than it is in ours at the moment. I mean, can people really befriend their fear when fear now means, you know, incarceration, torture, loss of life? You're right. But there are many fears being have, uh, and they have been manipulated by the right-wing populism. It's the fear of the enemy, the stranger, the other. It is the fear of other nations invading your country. It is uh, fear of refugees coming, Turkish refugees coming to London. And that's why Brexit happened. Mm. Um, And these fears have been played with for quite a long time. So in order to make them less 
dangerous. I think we progressives might propose befriending our fears because fear is a very precious emotion. Uh, we can do many things with it. We can be uh, hostile because of our fears. We can be mm -hmm. vicious and mean, mm -hmm. but also we can accept our fear, befriend our fear, and then be in solidarity with the others who are also in fear. Uh, so we have many fears at this moment in time, like from climate change to, you know, gas bills this winter. Mm -hmm. If we can accept these fears, like human beings should, <laughs> and then, you know, come together to talk about them in a more sane and serene way, then we can create a more constructive politics around our fears. Right. Um, so, yeah. And as for Turkey, yeah, the fear has been dominating the country for quite a long time now. And it just muted almost all the voices in the country there. Of course, I have fellow citizens uh, with whom I'm absolutely proud of who are still out there in Turkey yeah, speaking their minds. And I have the utmost respect for them and I stand with them. But then fear should not be underestimated. All those who are silent cannot be counted as complacent. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. It would be too merciless for people mm -hmm. against people. I mean, like it would be, yeah, yeah it would be because the much. fear is is real. The fears are rational, and the exactly and not everyone has the capacity. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and so should we be looking for centre ground between the you know between <laughs> these these factions, um, or should we be looking to persuade? One thing, I cannot be friends with, you know, hardcore fascist person. So I wouldn't go that <laughs> far proposing that. But then many people I see around uh, who who's clapping, you know, who's applauding uh, these leaders are not, you know, exactly fascists. They just, some of them, they do not know what they're doing and some of them do not have any other political options uh, like you know choices and so on mm -hmm. they weren't offered and you know we have been through decades of depolitization so it's only natural that we have these infantilized masses Mm. To, to to work with. Who don't have the kind of critical skills to unpick exactly. what they're being told and to analyse it. And, to, and, to, and yeah. also, I mean, like, you know, for decades, especially since 1980s, this idea has been imposed on us. The idea of politics is dirty. You shouldn't mm. be doing politics. Mm. That's why all these people have voted for these leaders who claim to be above and beyond politics, therefore clean uh, yeah. figures yeah so yeah untainted I mean, like, yeah we are trying yeah. to reverse a current that has been there for several decades now it's not going to be easy but i think we are in a quite good spot especially this winter because this winter it will become clear that all those words you know those big words you mentioned nation mm -hmm. us you know making the country great again they will see that there is no they're all in vain i mean like they they have no no consequence in real life so maybe this winter is a good starting point for progressives to be more engaged and more faithful i should say <laughs> yeah 
And I, I was thinking about you the other day when I was on a train and got talking mm. to a man who, first of all, like very nice, just chatty. And then he suddenly started spouting conspiracy theories about mm. the whole world being a simulation. And, and I, and at those moments, I think we've all had those moments now where mm-hmm. we think the conversation is what once would have been normal. And it suddenly veers off into an entirely other direction. And, the, you know, like in those moments, I'm always at a loss of what to do, you know, because arguing with that person would have been pointless. There was no rationalising what he was saying. Um, I did try to a little. Uh, he was claiming that Joe Biden's a robot. Um, <laughs> and I was I was giving it a go, you know, but mm-hmm. actually it didn't work. It wasn't effective because our terms of argument were so different. And kind of very quickly, I felt angry and frustrated and and kind of like almost hurt by it, like almost like it was personal. His lack of rationality was a personal affront to me that I had to tackle. And I was thinking about what you say about attention over anger and the power of that in in dealing with those kind of conversations. Is, is that a way forward the next time there's a guy on a train who thinks Joe Biden's a robot? <laughs> well, um, uh, my propositions might not be easy to practice on the spot uh, on a train ride. But yes, I think... Yes, attention should replace anger because especially in that situation, which of course I experienced as well with the vaccine, anti-vaccine people with, you know, several other things. That is why I said we are now on different grounds. We are not even fighting on the same ground. You know, you're meeting this person who has a completely different perception of life in every level literally a different understanding of reality you know like that's that's where it is that's how extreme it is yeah this is the consequence of our new communication medium (laughs) Mm. i mean like we are we we have many truths now okay it's the open buffet of truth so people pick what they want but then i think this is a passing by phenomenon it will pass in in you know in a few more years and it won't be as strong as it is today this you know the separation mm-hmm. between the realms of different realities so to speak but attention is good for us you know in terms of not to lose it one and also it is exhausting to be angry at these things. So attention would lead us to a place where we can understand that this guy on the train is actually so afraid of things. So he cannot make it, you know, he cannot come with a, you know, proper explanation. So he just takes shelter in these conspiracy theories. So if we are patient uh, and mature enough to talk to this guy about our own fears about fear in general, mm. um, maybe then we can come to a, you know, not a consensus per se, but like, you know, at least those grounds, those separate grounds of realities can come closer to each other. A kind of reassertion of mutual humanity, I think, is, is yeah. almost what we need to do. Yeah, I, I am, you know, it's not easy to love humans. Uh, no seriously they don't make it easy no 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 no. they don't make it easy and also it is not easy to believe in humans either but humanity is a bigger 
concept and also to love them to love humanity to love uh, to believe in humanity is a moral choice um, so that i made that moral choice because that was the only way to go if i don't want to kill myself that's it otherwise we are lost in our own depressions and that's it we need to believe in humankind not because humanity needs us but rather more rather like for ourselves and this is how people believe in god as well it's not for god it's for themselves so that's why i believe in humanity just to survive these times actually and you talk a lot about choice don't you yeah i mean are we always able to choose are are these really choices and and do we have that level of constraint and control that we'd need to to make these these kind of very big lifelong choices towards our behavior um no i don't think so i'm not that existentialist i am too <laughs> old to be existentialist but yeah i'm 49 now if you asked me this question like 10 years ago i would have said yes we do have the power la 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 but then no no actually we don't and we are just a push and pull between our choices and our obligations and we are all products of uh, ideological project in, in in our own countries mm. i'm i'm a ideological project of turkish republic you know the secular democratic turkish republic that's why i cannot live in that country anymore because <laughs> yeah that yeah. production line has been stopped <laughs> <laughs> that you know that is cancelled out but yeah uh, we are so many things but we also have to choose to be our choices as well mm. otherwise why would we live anyway why would we yeah. think we can't afford to be passive in this anymore yeah at least we can we can think that we are not completely we can imagine ourselves as mm. you know powerful beings powerful enough to make choices yeah yeah and have a go at it yeah <laughs> this has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, it's just been lovely and it's it's really nice to ramble through these thoughts and to to unearth the complexity of them. I I want to ask you one final thing really, which is do you see yourself ever moving back to Turkey? And if you did, would you ever be able to reconcile yourself with the people that have driven this political movement that's turned you away? Oh, that is the biggest question that I even don't ask myself yet mm. Uh, mm. because I left Turkey when I was 44 and I started writing in another language I wanted to survive and I still am surviving so such big questions such emotional deeply emotional questions weakens me and it takes away uh, my strength which i need very much to survive mm. so i'm not thinking about that but i of course i want to be able to go back to turkey and also i want to be able to sit down with my friends have rakı and fish on bosphorus and mm. laugh a lot because you know humor turkish humor is a very particular one and it's <laughs> messy <laughs> and i missed that i i missed yeah. it a lot uh, this language of yours catherine <laughs> <laughs> we do our best what can i, I know <laughs> i know i know <laughs> but middle east since since we suffered a lot we have i think a better sense of humor <laughs> with egyptians and lebanese we are amazing like <laughs> 
so yeah, I, I missed humor, that. I yeah, a lot of gallows <laughs> humor. Yes, that is true. <laughs> yeah, always the best kind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I I do hope you can return one day. Thank you. And Thank you. I mean, you have a home amongst your enormous community, which must at least be some kind of comfort. I think they absolutely, you know, they adore you and hold you up a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning to write a book now about, uh, now about home and what is home in 21st century. I think home is other people for yeah. every one of us in this century. It will become so, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. I don't know if you can hear that, but I was just listening to a woodpecker then. He's flown away. Such a distinctive sound. It sounds just like the cartoons, honestly. I think he's behind me now. He's busy tapping holes in those trees. As you know, if you've listened to the wintering sessions, I like to walk and think at the same time. And I was just reflecting on that conversation with Eche, which I think for me really made me more conscious than ever of how Western and specifically British my perspective is. It's so fascinating to talk to someone who is situated in a very different part of the world, towards the east of Europe and the west of Asia, who thinks in terms of Turkey and Iran and the Islamic world in a way that only comes into the periphery of my vision when I read the news. I think it's amazing to hear those different perspectives. And also hard, you know? It's hard because, as we talked about together, we, as a species, are almost unable to process the sheer amount of news that comes at us And I actually think news is a bad word for it now because I think, you know, what's happening for us is a deeper process of understanding that we've never been called on to undertake before. A process of not just knowing what happened in the briefest possible way on a news programme that we've watched while we're having our supper or making our breakfast in the morning. But knowing on a deeper, more human level, perhaps having contact with the people who are the news, we can't de-individuate them anymore. We can't see them as a baying crowd because the way that we're living how we're living is 
putting us in contact with their actual voices, their actual humanity. You know, we're reading their tweets. We're seeing their Instagrams. And that's transforming this idea of news into something that becomes much more about events happening to a community of which we're a distant part. And I do think we should acknowledge how hard that is for us. What a difficult thing it is for us to process this level of compassion, this level of shared fear, which I know is not direct, but which transfers over to us. This kind of sheer bulk of understanding, of social understanding, it's bigger than we are. And I think it really helps to be able to talk to somebody who knows it firsthand, who can make sense of it for us, to have a guide. I'm so grateful for that. And I couldn't help but think, as I was talking about TikTok, actually, (laughs) of all things, which I know that women of my age are supposed to sneer at. But actually, I've been dipping into it a lot lately. It took me ages to train the algorithm. First of all, it just gave me young white girls doing their makeup and their nails. And I really, really couldn't be less interested in that. But I started to follow booktokers. Feel free to follow anyone that I follow on there. They're all great. And I started to follow the people that TikTok threw up at me who were just curious to me, just interesting, just outside of my own experience. And pretty quickly I trained the algorithm to spit out things at me that are really genuinely unpredictable, that I wouldn't be able to find myself. And I'm now following people across the globe who are writing humorously and who are talking seriously about the issues that affect them and about what they know and how they know it. And it's actually given me deeper insight into that big complex world than any social media app I've ever been on before. And it's become a real pleasure. I don't find it addictive in the way that Twitter can be. (laughs) But I'm happy to sometimes give it 30 minutes on a Sunday morning and to watch a Maori woman tell me about what it is to have people encroaching on her land and a young Indian dancer show me the different expressive moves she's trained to make and what they signify and to watch an Ethiopian woman explain how she cooks and why she doesn't feel like she's missing out on a single thing for not having electricity and that for me is the gift of this that I can dive deeply into the huge wide world and challenge myself to know it better to know it more empathetically to know it in a way that isn't hierarchical that isn't patronizing it's actually a pretty good thing honestly once you get past the girls with the nails and the hair and the makeup and endless stuff about the royal family which TikTok assumes I must be interested in.
anyway thank you for listening i hope you get outside soon it helps you know and i'd love to hear what you're thinking in response to this so in a moment we will share some links for you to get in touch and i look forward to sharing your views and your questions and your thoughts very soon thanks for listening And that's all for this episode. Thank you for being here to explore how we live now. To share your comments, questions or answers, go to howwelivenow.info and write a message or record a voicemail. We'll be compiling the best ones into an end of season special. How We Live Now is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. For updates, show notes and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at katherinemay.substack.com. And finally, please consider pre-ordering my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.